Well, before we start, Stuart, we have an announcement to make. An announcement that's going to break the internet. An announcement that's going to change the way the world works. When I saw it with my own two eyes, my hat nearly hit the ceiling. People were throwing their babies in the air, dropping to the ground, frothing at the mouth, gnawing the legs off of tables. And the reason for it is this. After 12 years on YouTube and the several years of stagnation, we have growth. We have exponential growth. Growth so rapid that it's becoming a full-time job just to maintain. No longer are we a small fish sitting in the bowl on the kitchen cabinet. No, it's beyond that now. We've upgraded to being a small fish in a big pond. We've finally hit 1,000 subscribers on YouTube. A milestone that I think... I'd say every content creator pushes towards that at first, you know? Um, but like, to take it seriously for a moment, by all counts, on a platform like this, that's still a pretty low number, and that's okay. But there was such a gap on the channel, and it was largely unfocused. It was sort of a throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks kind of attitude towards YouTube. And it was really just a place to store a bunch of stuff that I'd made. So it wasn't until a couple of weeks ago that we both decided to get together and just rebrand it to be a lot more focused and a lot more consistent. Which I think that's a strategy that so many creators preach, but even after only a few weeks of going at it like that, I mean, you really do see the difference. Yeah, I mean, it was funny because initially we were losing subscribers fairly quickly. And then, um, you know, this week it's kind of turned around and we've managed to recover what we lost and then, and then some. So, listen, you, everyone, everybody has to start somewhere. And I think it's really good that we've hit a thousand. And hopefully it's just onwards and upwards from here. And we've got a lot of content planned um, on top of the podcast. And hopefully it's stuff that will keep people engaged and entertained. And, uh, you know, we'll grow and grow. And fingers crossed. Um, I'm quite excited about where it's going to go. So bring it on. Well, yeah, as am I. And, you know, building a community, people are always striving to get to that huge milestone where they have hundreds of thousands of views and stuff. And yeah, that's a great milestone to try and get towards. But there's also, I think, a couple of negative side effects of that. Like, at the moment, it can be quite easy to engage with your community. But how difficult it is to be personable with your fan base. Like, every comment I can respond to just now, right? Every comment, I've said it before, I'll respond to any comment. I can thank people personally for watching or getting engaged with the content. But eventually, I think when people get too big, they lose some of that. And the um, members of the community that they'd previously engaged with, they can just kind of get lost in the shuffle of the others trying to engage with the creator. So, yeah, it's a milestone nonetheless. But uh, given that we've reached 1,000 two days before my 33rd birthday nonetheless, I thought it might be a good opportunity to talk about what we actually have planned. Because, like, just talking to you every week, that's that's fun and all, and that's pretty easy to sort out, but I think we're both a little bit more ambitious than that. And behind the scenes, when we're not recording the podcast, there's sometimes hours of messenger chats that go back and forth about stuff that we're planning on doing, both individually and together, but under the POV cast branding. Yeah. POV cast, podcast, point of view cast, that... I don't know. I always read it as podcast, but I guess POV cast. Uh, so we should probably take some time just as a thank you to the uh, grown community to discuss what those things are going to be. And I know that you have one coming up um, midweek. Yeah, so off the bat, we're going to launch our first of our Ask Me Anything series, 
with uh, an interview I did with uh, Johnny Leggett, who's a former member of the French Foreign Legion. Um, that should drop tomorrow evening, hopefully. That's Wednesday, for anyone that's watching it before uh, it drops, or Wednesday, <laughs> previously, for anyone who's watching it afterwards. Um, but yeah, I put a few clips from that out on TikTok just to see what would happen, and um, was overwhelmed, actually, the amount of people that viewed and commented and liked and, uh, you know, seemed really interested in our interview with Johnny. So hopefully that, that drops tomorrow. Um and everybody enjoys that. And then next week we have another line, uh, AMA lined up with a personal trainer who's done some work with myself and, you know, at the studio here on, on the TV programme we're currently working on. Um, she's done some interviews and Q&As there, so she, uh, she's going to bring some something interesting to that. And going forward, we'll continue with additional AMAs and try and find interesting people from all walks of, you know, of life and uh, sit down with them for 20 minutes and have a wee blether and hopefully bring some interesting content that can engage with our audience um, on all ranges of uh, topics. So that's that. Um, you yourself have some stuff? Well, yeah, I do. Um, at the moment, I'm working on a, a rather large, long-form editorial talking about uh, the career of M. Night Shyamalan, thanks to the upcoming Knock at the Cabin um, which I can't wait to see. I think it comes out here in February. So I thought it would be a good idea to go back to the very first film that he made, uh, Wide Awake, which was even before uh, Unbreakable in the Sixth Sense. And just his career itself... Well, his his career is a little bit of a meme as well. We've talked about uh, Nicolas Cage and Bruce Willis with geezer teasers, things yeah. like that. But M. Night Shyamalan has one of the, the most interesting careers, in my opinion. Somebody that started off so strong that became almost farcical. But with all that in mind, for some reason, he is one of the most entertaining directors to me. He is one of my favourite film directors. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to go back and look at the first film right up to Knock at the Cabin, which I will have seen by the time I finish the editorial, and look at how his ego caused a bit of downfall, how the twist endings were starting to ruin the films that he was making. Like his twists would ruin what was otherwise a pretty good film up until that point. Um, it would change the road that the film was going down and you almost wish you could watch the film again without the twist and it would have been a better film. And his career peaked very early, then it declined. Every now and then he has a hit when he has a hit. It's as if he has a ego problem. He runs with that hit too much and it collapses again. So his career is just constantly, it's like the, it's like the stock market. It's just up and down, up and down, up and down. You wouldn't know how to invest in the guy because you could either have a massive hit on your hands or you would lose all your money. So uh, I'm making an editorial outlining that so people can be expecting that hopefully sometime in February. Previously on the channel, I was doing late night reviews which were surprisingly popular. It was just a little bit hard to keep on top of because I was watching things from the past as opposed to things that were currently coming out. Because, get you know, getting getting clips of films that are still in the cinema or that have recently been released on Blu-ray or DVD, it can be quite hard to upload that without getting hit with copyright strikes. But now that this podcast is acting as a way that you and I can continue talking about things that we've just seen, and reviewing them on this, I think that opens the door to me maybe being able to 
make some more late night reviews talking about films from the past because it's not interfering with sort of more like current trending news so i'm going to continue doing name as well as animation stuff mm. i don't want to give that up i've got another company of terrors anthology episode in planning it's already written i'm in the pre-production stage yep and who knows for my birthday i might even get some equipment that'll help me move forward with that but that's slow time so i'm trying to do video reviews and editorials as well as the podcast mm -hmm. just to just to keep content flowing and it's probably worth adding we've got you know a couple of um scenes and things that we've been out shooting just you know experimentation with different types of uh, filming styles and, and things like that and we also have um for myself anyway at the studio i've got a couple of scripts that i'm working on um hopefully get one of those into you know pre-production maybe later in the year who knows um there's a lot there's a lot going on here basically in a, in a little in a little channel and hopefully uh people are enjoy what we're doing and, and continue to uh, grow our fan base so yeah i'm looking forward to what 2023 is going to bring so last time we talked about the last of us and how we were going to follow it uh -huh. currently airing week to week on hbo max sky atlantic now tv which is what i watch it on and at the time of recording this the first two episodes have dropped yep so i checked out the first one with robin last week who she, she isn't into post-apocalyptic stuff but regardless, I sat her down to watch it, and I promised myself I'd sit through each episode as soon as reasonably practical, because I knew that you were very keen on following it too. So episode one came out last week. It was it was a more or less a feature length premiere episode. I watched it late at night with the lights dimmed, really wanting to get into the tone that hopefully the show was going to capture. And God, I don't know about you, but I loved it. Uh, I've quite a bit to say about it. Like some negative takeaways as well. Don't get me wrong; it wasn't it wasn't perfect or anything. But the negatives really didn't take too much away from the positives at all. So uh, I just want to go through them. Yeah. Well. Okay. Start with the negatives, um, and then we'll do an overall. I because I actually thought the episode was really good. I really enjoyed it. I think the big thing for me um, was that I haven't played the game so long that it was slightly, you know try to memorize bring back the, thing, the things about the game that i enjoyed but the thing that hit me straight off the bat was how much like a game the visuals really were it's actually quite visually stunning in a lot of ways and um it's funny because i was sitting there the other day just thinking to myself it's like watching a like the cutscene from a game and then suddenly you get brought back to reality that you're not actually watching the game at all you're watching pedro pascal and i, I think that's what brought me out of that little um sort of mind game if you like but yeah like, okay start well, with the negatives and we'll, we'll go back well okay we'll we'll get back onto that what you just said we will start um with the negatives mm -hmm. and they're not many there's there's really not many negatives uh, the game isn't so precious to me that i was familiar with every line of dialogue yeah. so with them doing this i don't know if it's just to remain faithful to the game or if it's their own writing but there was quite a lot of profanity in the episode, and profanity in TV is great. But in the show, it it felt pretty forced, and there was a couple of times when they were um, when they were saying fuck that I thought it it sounded really forced and almost a little bit cringing. Again, they they could just be trying to stay faithful to lines that are in the game. I'd have to research it to find out, but that didn't work too well for me. 
it, it's as minor a criticism as you can get it's just that um i thought the profanity that they used didn't always work it sometimes came across as a little bit try hard but that's a, a very small criticism I really didn't have any problem with the profanity. I didn't think it was that cringy either. I actually quite thought I quite liked it. Like, I, I actually thought um, I forget her name. Uh, what's her name? Bella Ramsey. Yeah, I thought quite thought Bella Ramsey actually sounds quite a lot like Ellie from the game. Just you know, if you know Ashley Johnson's voice, um, it's, it doesn't sound too far removed. And then you've got um, how she looks as well, actually, and you, you could. She could pass off as a, as a younger Ashley Johnson, and I know there was issues with the character when they first made her because I think she looked like is it Elliot Page now? He got, um, and there was a likeness rights that wasn't given, and so there was an issue there. And then, and then they've changed as the game went on. They've made the character in the second game look a bit more like Ashley Johnson, I believe. So, but I thought overall, I thought um, Bella Ramsey looked and sounded like Ellie, which was quite good. And I didn't have any issues with the profanity. I didn't think it felt that forced. Um, so yeah, I'd have to disagree with you on that one. Well, I mean, we can disagree on some things. That's okay. Um, I, I know some people were giving Bella Ramsey shit off the basis that she doesn't actually look like Ellie from the game, which, uh, yeah, I guess for a purist, I suppose that could count as a valid criticism. But if we're going to go on pure acting ability, I thought she's doing a fantastic job as Ellie. And the, the parts where the character really gets to shine, we haven't even reached that point yet. So she's still got boots to fill, but... So far, she's been great. And Pedro Pascal, I mean, well, damn. The guy just nails the look of having the weight of the entire world on his shoulders thus far. He has that gruff look for the ruthless side to Joel, but on those early scenes with his daughter, you could see the sensitive side to him really shine through. And the few scenes where we just had Ellie and Joel talking to each other, and there weren't many, the actors did a pretty good job at creating a dynamic with each other and if they keep that up it does look like it's going to work yeah i mean the dynamics there already from the start and i think um there's obviously some chemistry there between the two which is great because it allows them to have that sort of father-daughter bond which joel and ellie kind of have um but no i wouldn't i wouldn't have anything negative to say about bella ramsey and as far as not looking like the character from the game she's not gonna so the similarities of course but i mean come on like if that's your if that's your biggest you know bugbear and you're you're picking up things to to have a fault with because to me unless you're going to you know go and find someone that looks exactly like that particular character which would be very difficult to do probably what's the point i'd rather have an actor that can pull off the role and not look exactly like the game character than have someone who's not so great at the acting but looks like the character so nah, i don't have any issues with bella ramsey's performance um, which is where it probably gets controversial because I do think sometimes, whilst I love Pedro Pascal, he doesn't quite hit some of the the Joelisms at times. I remember Joel being a lot gruffer and a bit more blunt than Pedro Pascal was a bit softer. I think just in tone generally. So again, it's not a problem for me. I don't. I'm not so precious about the game that I'm looking at that getting annoyed about it. Um, but it was something I noticed, and it was something that I did actually talk about talk with a friend of mine, who uh, who now he is a huge gamer boy for Last of Us series, and he kind of says the same sort of thing. But he likes loves Pedro Pascal in the role, but does feel some of the Joel mannerisms are are not quite on point. Um, but again, you're you're in my opinion, you're 
clutching at straws when you start analysing little things like that because it's not computer characters. These are real people acting who are being given directions. Um, and if there's any little small issues like that, I've, for me... Well, the, you, yeah, you're not going to get it perfect and the game, it's going to be quicker storytelling. I think that storytelling in the game moves quite fast and... If, if you're making a TV adaptation of the game, it's going to be a lot more slow burn. So these moments that you're referring to, these Joelisms, these were probably the very, very early, very early scenes that were shot for the premiere. So maybe he gets more into that. Maybe not. Either way, it's similar to my profanity criticism. It's pretty minor. He, he will make the character his own. He isn't doing an impression of the character from the game. And if someone was trying to just replicate the game perfectly that would probably shine through and it would become obvious that they're just trying to copy it as opposed to making the character um in their own mind um and their own vision which is better but really in terms of negatives from the first episode i don't really have any i thought it was really great and i, I really can't have it have anything bad to say about that episode um so i really enjoyed it um, I'd rather, you know, if you've, you've nothing else to say about the negatives, let's move on to the pluses because, again, visually it looked so much like the game. The little, there's like little points where you've got, like, got your load screens and you've got your little um, the way they walk and the way the camera moved around the characters and see that, the, the prologue when obviously when the virus first kicks in and you've got Ellie, uh, sorry Joel and his daughter and they're driving in the car and they're driving about and all that kind of stuff. It felt so much like just watching the cutscene from the game and that's continued into the second episode. And I, I really loved it. I, th I thought it was really well done. And it um, it's enough of a change between the game and the, and the real live action to, but without being a completely different entity. So it, it yeah, it's bringing to life characters that I actually really, you know, enjoy seeing now, now in a live action situation. And I, I have really nothing negative to say about the first episode. I thought it was really great. And I, it really had me excited for episode two. Well, um, yeah, the the scale of the show, well, it's a HBO series. It was always going to be great, but the world looks fucking outstanding. Like, you know, they've got the nature growing everywhere on the deserted world, the, the old buildings. It looks phenomenal. The opening credit sequence as well. H HBO have a history of having great opening title sequences, and I know that it's largely been taken from the game in some areas, but the the opening credits immediately had me immersed into the world and they've obviously got the top tier people creating this this was just one location the last of us is full of like wonderful set pieces all over the place even in just the game seeing how they've created the um the quarantine zone stunning you've snuck out of that world ever so slightly just at the end of the episode and it looks great. I can't wait to see what they're going to do with it. Yeah. Um, the second, I, I'm quite curious as to some of the uh, set design, if it was all done if, on green screens or if, there's, if they used virtual production, going back to an earlier discussion with the Unreal Engine. Obviously, Pedro Unreal, Pascal yeah. coming from The Mandalorian, very well, well versed in that, um, you know, technology that goes into making that happen with the LED screens and whatnot. So I'm curious if they've, if they've done that with some of the backdrop elements of the show. Um, more so in the second episode when you're seeing much more of the cityscapes and, and whatnot. Um, 
But yeah, I think they've done a really, really fantastic job of recreating the world of The Last of Us, and uh, you you do feel like you're not, um, you know, you feel believable. You feel it's believable. You're you're actually watching this 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 show, and uh, it doesn't feel like it's too far removed. Maybe that maybe that's come off the back of COVID, you know, the lockdowns and the various issues we've had in the last couple of years. That you're watching this and thinking like it's not so far uh, removed from reality in some ways. Um, thank God it's not real because you know who'd want to live like that. But at the same time, it's it's probably tapping into something that's still quite fresh, you know. And I think people can probably uh, empathise in some ways with all the guys in the quarantine zones and trapped and can't go out after certain times. And because it's you know it's not that long ago we were weren't allowed to go for a walk, <laughs> so. Well, yeah, it's it's probably been made and released at the perfect time because we're just coming out of that, so people will be able to see parallels between what happened in the real world and what's uh, happening in the show. I, I did have two other negatives. Two, uh, they're small negatives. Uh, the first was the time jump. Unless I'm mistaken, the show jumped from the death of Joel's daughter to 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Am I correct in saying that? Something like that. They did that in the game, though. He doesn't look 20 years older. He maybe looks five years older. It's I think it's far too big a time jump to use the same actor. Nah, I disagree. Because if, you, if you're 30 and you turn to 50, what's going to change? You get some wrinkles and some grey hair. You're not going to change that much. It's like between 20 and, you know. I, 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 well, I, yeah, I, a minor, minor criticism, sure. But for all the, the positives of the acting, I did have one massive issue with one actor who will gladly not return to the show. The prologue, the talk show prologue, which I, I thought was an interesting way to start uh, the show, That that's fine. You've got a talk show. You're kind of explaining the background of Fungus and how it could eventually evolve to take over. That, that's perfectly set. Why would you pick John Hanna? Why not? Why would you pick John Hanna? Why He's not? not a good actor. I don't know if it's just because we're Scottish, so sometimes when you hear a Scottish actor act, it doesn't sound as naturalistic to us because we know that this isn't really how Scottish people act. It just I, I was very conscious of the fact that he was acting. I just thought they could have picked a better actor than him to carry out that scene. Again, I think it's a clutching at straws criticism. It didn't bother me at all. I will say, you know, having watched Spartacus, I didn't, there was times in John Hanna and that kind of annoyed me, but um, in this particular show, nah, it didn't bother me. In fact, it was kind of nice to see a familiar face, and especially a Scottish face, on essentially such a large show that's, you know, um, I believe the viewer, view figures were up 22% from last week to episode two. Um, you know, because there's no John Hanna. <laughs> anyway, but see, episode two, I know you haven't seen it yet, but certainly that's, uh, that continues, you know, the form. But I will say there's a few things about that episode that did annoy me more than the first. Um, overall, it was a great episode. And you see the, the dynamic between Ellie and Joel growing a bit more. I think that's what I'm most interested in seeing, the dynamic between the characters. Yeah, it's great seeing post-apocalyptic fungal zombies attacking. But the draw to me, at least from the TV series, uh, I've seen enough post-apocalyptic shows where people are in peril the draw to me is actually going to be the dynamic between Joel and Ellie and not so much the, the peril. Well, it's, it was never about the peril, though. It was always about the dynamic between Joel and Ellie and their story unfold in this world where there is, you know, 
issues, the virus, you know, the the fungal spread, the the clickers and the various other things you run into. It always came back down to, for me the the dynamic between Joel and Ellie and how their relationship develops, um, and that starts to you know come out in episode two. And again, chatting to my friend about it, he he was saying the same thing that there's a point where Ellie is wandering around and she finds a body and gets a fright, and then Joel kind of helps helps her up, and you can see there's that fatherly instinct kind of kicks in for a second and then he kind of backs away from it and we all know having played the game how that's going to develop anyway um but he did change the character of tess and her death um you know everything's kind of the same up until before she dies and then uh instead of the um fedra guys coming in and killing her she's actually blows herself up along with all the clickers and the you know that have come in to try and find ellie and joe because like in the game, she's bitten, she's infected, she's done for anyway. Um, but there's this scene where she's infected and the clickers come into the, the, the room and because she's infected, they don't really do anything with her. They just kind of ignore her. And that's, you know, the, the old cliche of you know, being bitten by a zombie or you're turning into one of them. So they just they accept you, they don't, they don't attack you. But that didn't, in the game, that didn't happen. And then this clicker walks up to her and then kisses her. And I know it's not meant to be as a, as a, as a sort of sexual thing, but they've, you know, the little technical things come out and all the rest. And it was just like, why? What was the point? You don't have all these other little guys, you know, they're not running around doing that to each other. Um, she's already infected. They didn't need to do that. And it took, for me, it killed the drama of the moment. I, and I feel it would be nicer to see that her standing there, terrified with these clickers coming towards her, to try to light the lighter so she can blow the place up. And it's not, it's not lighting. And instead of attacking her, they just surround her. And then you could have like a nice shot where you see her like completely surrounded by all these what were once these horrible things that were trying to kill her and they're not touching her. And but you know, her in that genuine fear where she's just completely in the middle of a massive horde of these clickers, and then just see the, the lighter click and hear it light and then just see it drop and then boom, blow up. But this stupid thing coming in, I you'll see it when you see it. And I just I did not like it. I I didn't see what it added to the show. I don't think it did anything worth doing and that was that was the weakest bit for me the way they i did that little scene in um i don't think it was necessary it didn't add anything to anything within the story development it was just i think there is a sort of ick factor and ugh, for me it was just i've not bad. seen it no i haven't seen it but you, you'll get i'm to picturing it. i'm picturing a bunch of clickers going around in the world like trying to find a mate as yeah, you did snogging this, each this other is why it was stupid because strange. they don't do that so yeah it was daft and i get there's this whole you know um, fungal mycelial network type thing where the, it can communicate no matter where it is if it you know detects that they're there for the ground because it's in, in the ground obviously anything organic it can then tell them that they're all there and I just I just didn't understand why they did that maybe someone smarter than me can justify it to me and explain it to me but I didn't get it I didn't like it I didn't think it was necessary um, but that was really my only bugbear with the episode again visually stunning lots of little throwbacks to the game Again, it was there was a there was a, the scene actually when Ellie finds the body. I was watching it. And I felt like I was watching a cutscene from the game, and it's just when he, Pedro Pascal turned to the camera that it clicked back out that it wasn't Joel from the game; it was Pedro Pascal, and that brought me back to the reality that it's live action. The, the, the episode does start again with a, another epilogue type situation where it's talking about um, the virus, which played really nicely actually because you know they discover it in the humans, and then they they uh, bring in a, an expert on fungus to come in and analyze it. And then she's shocked to discover that it's in humans. And they ask how, how can she cure it? And he, she turns around and says, you can't. So the only thing you can do now is bomb the city. 
bomb everybody. And uh, that plays nicely to later on, because Ellie actually, when she's out in the city, goes asks about the bomb craters. So it lets you know that that was the only way to resolve this, to try and slow down the spread. And everybody basically bombed each other and themselves to try and stop this. And it didn't work, evidently. So um, I'm curious to see if they're going to continue with that for every episode, as we go into episode three. Um, but right now, as far as the show goes, I'm hooked. I'm dying to see episode three. I'm really looking forward to where it goes from here. Um, and I've seen the, the trailer for episode three, and obviously it's the, the bringing Bill in. So, yeah, uh, not much more to say about episode two because you haven't seen it, so we can't discuss anything. But definitely still on track. Uh, I'm really enjoying it, and I'm really, really excited about episode three. So just hours ago, at the time of recording, just hours ago, the nominees for the Academy Awards 2023 have been released. It would be unfair of us to fully predict the different categories because I know we haven't seen everything that's been nominated, but I thought it would be a good idea to get the nominees up and talk through them. Maybe the categories that are most relevant to us and we can talk a little bit about them. Yeah, absolutely. I do need to do one thing though. Last week I mentioned my, my pal Craig Wallace and his comic book and I called it Quora. It's actually called Natives. So I apologise to Craig. He, he gave me a row <laughs> for calling it the wrong thing. Um, but he called it Quora for years and that's how I knew it. So, you know, inside information. But there you go. I... Well, we need to get him on to plug it. Well, he's a scriptwriter, so I'm sure he'd love to come on at some point. Um, but yeah, I can maybe take a couple of scenes from the comic book actually and chuck them as a short and if he's up for doing that and let people see it. Um, it's, you know. But anyway, yeah, the Oscars. So, where do you want to start? Best picture? Uh, we'll do that last. The last, sorry, where do you want to start that last? Um, wherever you were going to finish, start that. <laughs> wherever it's going to finish. All right, well, I was going to finish with cinematography, obviously. Yeah, no Well, uh, it's most relevant to you, so it would be a, a good thing to start on. It would be, yeah, if I can find it. Well, who we got? Hang on. I had it a second ago. I've past it. Uh, where are we? Right. Best cinematography. Okay, so best cinematography. So All Quiet on the Western Front is with James Friend. Have you seen that film? No, no, not yet. That's been suggested to me from a few people. Yeah, a few people suggested it to me too. I did start trying to watch it, but it was one of those movies that I felt I had to be in a, a certain mind frame for and I wasn't, so I just turned it off. I'll come back to it at some point. Um, Darius Conji has been uh, nominated for Bardo, False Chronicles of a Handful of Truths. Now, um, Seven is one of my favourite films, and that was shot by Darius Conji, so I'm kind of glad to see his name appear there. Uh, Elvis, Mandy Walker, obviously Elvis is doing the rounds right now anyway. Uh, one of my all-time favourite cinematographers, Roger Deakins, uh, once again nominated for the film Empire of Light, so he's in there. Every it wouldn't year? Be, it wouldn't be the Oscars without Roger Deakins, though, would it? No, he's there every single year. You know, he hasn't actually won it as often as he should have either. I think he's the most nominated in history, um, and he has won twice, I believe, at this point, but it's uh, certainly he should have won more, I believe, you know. And finally, Florian Hofmeister with Tar. Which again, I haven't seen. I'm ashamed to say I haven't seen any of these films. Actually, it's quite, quite a horrible admission. Um, but there you go. Uh, best so support. With that said, we can't really pull for anybody because we haven't seen the films. Well, I'm going to pull for Roger Deakins. You don't purely always from have a to see fanboy standpoint, but hey ho. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so we'll go for, we'll go for lead actress and lead actor. So lead actress, we've got Kate Blanchett for Tar, which, and I believe she won the Golden Globe for Tar. So that's interesting. Maybe she won both of them. Uh, Anna Diarmas with Blonde, which also got the most Razzies. I was reading that this morning. It's the most. It's had the most Razzies nominated this year of any any film. Um, but was nominated for an Oscar at the same time. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, Andrea Riseborough with Le- To Leslie. Uh, Michelle Williams for The Fablemans. And Michelle, you are with Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Any names there that surprise you? Ashamed to admit, there's a couple of names that I'm familiar with, but the rest of it's sort of a um, who's that of nominees. Which isn't always a bad thing. Uh, I think this year I've heard from other friends sending me messages about the Oscar nominee, uh, the Oscar nominations, that there's so many first-time nominees, so it's a good opportunity for maybe a, the next generation of stars to start pushing through. Well, moving on to best lead actor, I suppose. Then maybe the, maybe those names will be more familiar to you. Um, Elvis. With Austin Butler, again, same as he was strong nominated contender. for Golden Globe. Very strong contender. Uh, Colin Farrell won the Golden Globe for the Banshees of Inisherin. He's been nominated as well. Uh, of course, a huge talking point for you is Brendan Fraser with The Whale. So he's been nominated. Obviously, he didn't go to the Golden Globes and didn't win there, but maybe this will be his uh, his ceremony. Who knows? Uh, Paul Mescal with Aftersun. And Bill Nye, not the science guy. For living, which I haven't seen, but I have seen some trailers for it. Actually, it looks amazing. It looks really stunning visually. I'm I'm really excited to look a bit more into the cinematography of that because it does look like a really beautifully shot film. So I'm surprised to see that's not been nominated in the Oscars. Actually, from some of the um, things I've heard about it, you know, the cinematography's been getting a lot of good hype. But you know, I suppose you can't nominate everybody, can you? Unless I'm mistaken, though. Um... I think a lot of those actors have been nominated for Oscars before, but this is the first time that they've all been nominated for the best lead actor. I don't think any of any of those actors have been nominated for the best lead actor before. I think this is a first for them. Yeah, uh, I'm not even going to talk about Brendan Fraser and the the will. Every episode thus far has been a segment dedicated to the guy. It could be called the Brendan Fraser podcast. But considering I've not even seen the film, I've given it far too much attention. I'm just really pulling through for the guy. And I'm glad to see that he's got that nomination. Uh, you might find he could win it out of a political uh, political approach of giving Brendan Fraser the Oscar. Given the, the, full, the full 360 on his story to come back to where he started in his career, which was a big star. He went down and now he's coming back up. Well, best of it, we've got Mark McDonough with uh, the Banshee of Inishirin. And funnily enough, I was listening to a uh, Roger Deakins podcast and he was on there as a guest. Um, and it's quite interesting listening to him talk about his previous work and how he got his start and, um, you know, the the uh, motivations for the Banshee of Inishirin, along with the, <laughs> he talks about it in Bruges quite a bit actually as well, which was such a good film with, uh, again, Colin Farrell and Brendan uh, Gleeson. Uh, Daniel Kwan has won, uh, been nominated sorry, for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Steven Spielberg, there's uh, an old familiar name, nice to see again. He's for, been nominated for The Fablemans. Todd Field for Tar and Ruben Osland for Triangles of Sadness. Spielberg's got to be a very strong candidate to win that. That film seems to be ticking all the boxes for a successful film, like pr- prestige-wise, awards-wise. You've got Steven Spielberg, you've got the 
semi-autobiographical element, it's Spielberg, so it's probably making the industry so much money that it's going to get a, a lot of recognition. Anytime he's on an award ceremony, and he's nominated a lot, and he has won a lot, a, pr- a pretty solid bet at the bookies for that winning. Um, yeah, you know what? I think it would just be nice to see someone like Spielberg um, win something so prestigious. Uh, it's been a while, and... Um, I think he's been mostly producing lately, hasn't he? He hasn't done much directing of late. So it's I think nice the to last see big it. one was Saving Private Ryan, wasn't it? I'm sure he's done a few smaller things since then. There's a couple I think I discovered recently that were Spielberg that I didn't even realise. I think the guy I'd be rooting for is Martin McDonough. And I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. Sorry to the uh, Irish folk if I'm getting that wrong. But him and his brother, every single one of his films I've seen thus far has been great. In Bruges, as you mentioned before, Six Shooter, the short film with Brendan Gleeson, which was, I think that was available as a special feature on one of his DVDs or Blu-rays. Seven Psychopaths, it's such a clever film. If you've not seen Seven Psychopaths, definitely check it out. And then the Three Billboards movie with Francis McDormand was just stellar. I've always really look forward to the next Martin McDonough film and I know he usually works as a playwright and I think a lot of the things he's unable to adapt into plays he turns into films and there's a large gap, several year gap when he's making a film so for me when one comes out it's an actual event. He's won Oscars for writing before and I think um, it'd be great to see him on the stage again. He seems like a very charismatic guy, a very smart guy he has recurring actors that always come back to his projects, which I think is a, a pretty good sign for someone being good to work with yeah. if you're able to get a cast and crew to come back with you. So I'm pulling for him. So yeah, no, to answer your question, Spielberg's uh, done a few things recently. You know, The Fableman's been the current project, but he did West Side Story in 2021, uh, Ready Player One. I don't know if you ever saw that, but that was quite a good film, actually. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed uh, it. Uh, the Post, uh, The BFG, which... Kind of fell a bit flat, didn't it? No one didn't seem to get the uh, the love and adoration that probably could have had. Um, Bridge of Spies, Lincoln, obviously the big one prior to that in two thousand and twelve. Oh, of course, um, but yeah, no, he's still been around doing some stuff. But this is, you know, this seems to be the the one that's bringing them back to the the limelight. He's talked about the Fablemans for years. It's clearly a project that he's going to put his absolute all into because of how important it is to him. How relevant to his life it is um so even though i've not closely been following spielberg for years i think so so many other people have come up that are are worth following spielberg's had his time but every now and then he really does pull something out of the bag that grabs your interest because he is a master filmmaker whether or not you're a fan of some of his whimsical stuff or not he does have a lot of films that i maybe wouldn't suggest whimsical isn't always for me that there's parts about hook that i think oh you're you're trying a little bit too hard to be whimsy there but uh the fablemans i'll be checking it out well we've already discovered you don't like tryhards right so um yeah but mark madonna yeah i think I, i don't know i haven't seen the film i keep meaning to see the film i really want to see the film uh, the Banshees of Inishir, and um, I'm familiar with a lot of his previous work as well. Um, but yeah, he's uh, 
the the podcast of Roger Deakins. If you haven't heard it, you should check it out. It, it, you do get a good insight into where he's coming from with some of that stuff. And I don't know. I kind of I'm kind of pulling for Spielberg here this year, actually, only from the standpoint of um, nostalgia, I guess. But you may be right. He's maybe had his time. It's maybe time to allow someone else to take that mantle for best director. So from there, though, we should move swiftly on to what best picture. Best picture. Let's do so, it. So you know who we got. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. We've established that you haven't watched that yet either. Yeah. Um, probably no surprise to anybody. Avatar, Way of the Water. What's uh, your thoughts on Avatar? Well, I've seen it. It's a good film. I really enjoyed it. Um, but, you know, let's uh, you haven't seen it yet, so there's no point in discussing it. We can't have a discussion. So, But, and to, again, to no surprise, the Banshees of Inishirons in there for Best Picture. Elvis, as expected. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Uh, the Fablemans. Tar, Top Gun Maverick, which I don't know if you've seen, but again, I really enjoyed it. Um, some of the air, air, you know, photography, it's stunning. It's really well done. Um, it is a nostalgia movie, though, and, you know, story-wise, it's probably nothing too uh, exciting or original, but I don't know. It's just nice to see some some of the old stories coming back with new sort of approaches. Um and the, the the flying and the stunts they did in it just really well done actually. So you should give it a watch if you haven't seen it yet. If, if nothing else, is a is is an entertaining film to watch. You know, I was told so many times to watch Top Gun and not Maverick. I'm talking the original Top Gun. Check it out. I checked it out and I hated it. It it was it was the cheesiest kind of movie to me. That was the appeal to some people. I guess I'm maybe hyping up the the combat scenes and the flying and all that kind of stuff more than the, as I said, the story is nothing original or too exciting. It's the visual stuff they've done with the combat and the flying and the and whatnot that's makes it really engaging to watch from a filmmaker and from a cinematography standpoint. It's just a really interesting you know um, analysis to make on on how they've done it. Um, well, no, I, I get that. I'm sure aesthetically, production wise, I they were mounting IMAX cameras on uh, fighter jets and they were going to be doing everything practically and I'm pretty sure that will be Tom Cruise seen in the the pilot's chair yeah all, all of that sounds great but I don't think it I don't think it's enough to keep me uh, engaged fair enough I mean I, I tend to like switch to analysis mode when I lose interest in the film and I start analyzing things like the cinematography but Anyway, I think I said Tar already, uh, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. So there's quite a lot of films there that I've not seen yet, and I will be making it a point to try and see before the actual ceremony so we can discuss the actual results when they come in. Until then, neither of us have seen much of these films anyway, so let's just uh, leave that where it is for now, and we'll move on to our, our, our next topic. So back at the very start of this episode... You talked about how you were creating scenes. Yeah. Uh, I, I know you were originally recreating scenes from films that you already enjoyed. On your channel, there was the diner scene from Heat. Yep. Then there was the car scene from Prisoners, which mm -hmm. got a pretty good reaction. I watched it. I thought that visually it looked just like the original scene done with Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Roger Deakins' mm -hmm. visual style. I think you've moved on from trying to recreate scenes that already exist and you've been trying to film test scenes or even full scenes from 
films or scripts that you're actually intending on adapting. Yep. So I think there's one that you actually want to share on the channel and that you're going to be releasing soon. We've got the clip of it right here. Uh, we'll play it and then we'll talk about it. So here is, uh, do you want to introduce this clip? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, a, it's an original script. Um, it's part of a project that we might put into production at some point. And um, just to be clear, all, all these type of these things and doing the scenes, they're all just case studies. They're, they're, they're a chance to try out new equipment, new styles and various things like that. Or recreate scenes that I really liked and try and figure out how they did it. Um, all in, you know, means an effort to improve my cinematography. So, But this particular one is from an original script and... Um, was a lot harder to do without anything to look at and potentially, you know, it'd be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? To be inspired by. Um, but I will say I was watching Mindhunter at the time and I was quite heavily inspired by the visuals of Mindhunter and David Fincher and, again, um, something I've already mentioned, Seven's one of my favourite films. So I tried to, you know, try to take that influence when I made this scene. So, you know, without further ado, let's just play it and go from there. Roll the clip. This a haircut. Thanks for coming all this way. I'm Superintendent Reed, and this is DCI Robert Fraser. Detective? DCI. But you can call me Nick. Of course. I was your... Uh, when can I see the crime scene? We'll get to that. Some housekeeping first. Would you take a seat? To be clear, Nick, DCI Fraser is leading this investigation. You're here strictly as a consultant. For your time and experience, we're incredibly grateful. But this isn't London. We do things a little differently up here. I'll be honest, Nick, we're a small division. We've never encountered a case quite like this one. I'd like it to be dealt with efficiently and with discretion. The last thing we need is the public in a panic. Rob. This is Rebecca Hyde, 35. Last seen leaving her work, 0600, on the 14th. By all accounts, very well-liked, pleasant young lady. This is also Rebecca. She was found by the postman. 0900, approximately. This is not quite the same. Sloppy. Have you considered that you could be dealing with a copycat? Your uh, file made mention a great extent to uh, possible links with the occult, leaning towards the uh, Satanic Temple, the French Gnostic, and the Order of the Antichrist. Some would call those outlandish theories. Unique, yes. Outlandish, no. There are a number of these cults and their iconography that fit. But the consensus was that uh, these murders didn't have any one signature or ideology. Yeah. 
in the end it was just too difficult to narrow down any further. We did have a number of forensic psychologists who tried to profile the unsub, but they all came back with different prognoses. Well, maybe they're just looking for something that isn't there. What does that mean? It means it sounds like our killer's just giving us the runaround with all this occult mumbo-jumbo. It's cliched. It's... These killers always think they're so smart, and then they all have the same fatal flaw. And what's that? Their ego. I don't care if our man thinks he's the Zodiac. They'll mess up eventually. They always do. May I remind you that this killer has got away with five murders and vanished for seven years. And to your point, the Zodiac was never caught. I wouldn't be surprised if we already had our man in jail for something else. Now he's just out. Back to his old tricks again. Maybe. Who have you spoken to so far? I mean, have you rounded up partners, exes, the usual suspects? Yes, door-to-door -door has been conducted, thank you. We uh, have a few alibis still to cement. Oh, there was one neighbor who said she thought she saw Beck having an argument with somebody yeah, a couple well, of days what's ago. What's this argument? Was... Did the neighbor recognize who it was? I mean, was it another neighbor or a stranger? It was her neighbor. That's who I... Uh... That's who we need to talk to, this other neighbour. Reed? Yes. Yes, I see. No. No, no, it's fine. Do you know if there was anything missing from the body or taken from the house? We're still waiting for the crime scene report. When I know, you'll know. Now, if you can excuse me. So, what does that really mean? So, yeah, there you so go. So, what's that project called? Eckert, at the moment. It's kind of, we don't really have a name for it. It's, it's not a, it's not, it's not an official, you know, clip or anything from the, the script itself. It was something that we wanted to do here at the studio um, just to, you know, test out some equipment. Red were gracious enough to lend me a V Raptor for a couple of days. Um so we shot it for the most part on that. Um oh, and cool. we spent some time, you know, trying to design a wee a wee police set in the um in the studio here. Um yeah, but we did it on a relatively, you know, low well, there was no budget. It was just whatever we could get our hands on, you know, here in in our studio. And uh, the Raptor as our as our visual um you know, capture device and off we went. So yeah, let's uh, that's the scene and you know, hopefully it's engaging enough that people would like to see more of Well yeah. I mean I was intrigued when you showed me it. I was at a bit of a disadvantage because I was seeing the clip as you were in the process of editing it. You were looking for feedback, you were looking for grading um comments. So I, I was seeing it as it was getting put together. So I didn't actually properly get to see the clip until it was finished and by then I'd already seen enough of it to know where it was going so I was looking at it not as a scene but more of an analysis because I already knew what people were going to say, I already knew where the cuts were going to come, I was seeing it strictly as an analysis 
And given that you guys did that in just a couple of hours, was it? I thought it was pretty good. Um, the script itself, do you want to uh, give it a plug? What What is the overall storyline for people that don't understand the context of the clip that you've already shown? What's What's going on there? I can't really mention the script too much because it is potentially a work in progress. Um, so I don't really want to delve into anything about the script. Um, not really allowed to as such. The the scene, um, without much context, will hopefully give you a little bit of uh, understanding of what's going on within the film, and you know, like hopefully that would give you enough interest to want to see more of that. Um, but yeah, we shot it in two days, um, and I was sick with the norovirus at the time. I was dying on on the first day. I was. I got to the point where I kind of just gave up on life and lay on the floor, and everybody around me was saying, "It's time to just go home. You can't. You should be playing. You know, you've you've tried to be here all day and you've done your best, but you're not in it at the moment." So I came down to Tuesday and trying to get as much of it done in one day as we possibly could. Um, so I think all in all, considering you know we only had one day of shooting and um, we did, we, you know, we've done a pretty good job with with that. It'd be nice to have time and money and all the all the things that you you ask for when it comes to these kind of projects but um it was fun to shoot the actors you know came along and they were they played really well and they were great um and they all you know got a big shout out to you know marcus mcleod and ollie bassey and ian watt uh, who all came and played the various roles so uh yeah I, I would love to continue the story and maybe make more but i think as a studio it's maybe something we're, we're looking into anyway so that would be then out of my hands and onto bigger and more experienced people than i um so i'm excited to see where that project actually goes anyway and um the various takes on that particular yeah well see to your point you mentioned there about having the resources and uh, the equipment and everything that you actually want to be doing i've talked to you enough times that i know you've wanted to do things like mount the camera to cars and do a car chase and do sort of these sort of bigger scale a lot more fun projects so how does it feel having all that as something that you want to do and then filming a scene which is essentially people talking in an office very different styles of filming wanting to wanting to do that high energy type stuff and then you're wanting to do the high energy stuff and kind of sometimes revert back to just filming a conversation around a table i think you've got to be realistic about what you can do with what's available to you immediately and you know we don't have all the equipment necessarily to in-house right now to, to do a car chase or some kind of mad stunt as much as it'd be fun to do so and again these are these were short scenes that whole idea was to put something together quickly shoot something quickly and not spend you know too much time on it and we've all got stuff to do here at the studio you know so it's not something that i really want to spend too long on you know the boss has been gracious enough to allow me the time to do it anyway um and you know i don't want to take the piss so it's done it's dusted i will admit i kind of gave up on the grading a little bit just because there's so much going on now that i wanted just to get it out there and move on from it um but yeah i mean there's a lot going on there's gonna be a lot of chances to do those things i think in the future with other projects um it'd be you know and so it's just biding my time in the meantime i've got i've got the opportunity to be around you know top gear and um be involved in projects that allow me to really sort of branch out a bit more and test the waters with different you know techniques and styles so uh yeah i'm just really looking forward to the rest of the year there's a lot going on here at the studio and there's a lot going on for ourselves so you know i think it's going to be an exciting year yeah there's a lot a lot 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 going on with ourselves I mean, you know you, you and i 
where I, I don't I hope we never come across as boomers but you know we've we've got kids we've got full-time jobs you know we've 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 got life outside of work squeezing all of the kind of stuff that we actually want to do such as my review shows my animations my editorials this podcast yourself the scripts you want to work on there's your own individual projects you want to work on you're doing ask me anything's etc it's a lot to balance i mean if you put it all on paper balancing the ideas we have against the amount of time that we have to do it it's it's not easy i certainly hope we're able to consistently produce content for people to enjoy but also stuff that we actually want to do and we're not just producing content for the sake of producing content we have to stay true to ourselves and doing the actual things that we had on our mind i think uh, you notice when people that have growing channels or existing channels i think the longer it goes on you can tell that they're kind of going through the motions a little bit and i I want us to be able to stay ambitious and creating the kind of stuff that we want to create and not stuff just for the sake of content remaining consistent i think that's where for me anyway I'm, i'm lucky because i enjoy creating content and i've been doing this long enough now that if i was coming complacent i'd have done it already and so I'm always looking at the new technologies coming out, the new things that are coming out, the new styles, what's trending. And I try and look at those and I try and replicate them and I try and recreate them myself. Um, I look at, you know, how lighting's changing, how the technology that's going into that and what, what's happening there versus some of the older equipment that we, you know, still use on film sets day in, day out. Um, so, yeah, we've, t- we've touched on this before, but I think it's an interesting point. And it's all about, you know, learning and the growth that you, that you have as a filmmaker. So if you were to talk to young 20-year-old Douglas Fender, what is the one key bit of advice you would give him? Hmm. Interesting. You know, something that I did a lot when I was first trying to make content was I focused so much on the content and not the marketing of yourself. So I didn't have much of a social media presence. I didn't post updates about the work that I was working on. I didn't have behind the scenes footage. I didn't shoot B-roll. So when I was spending sometimes several months or even, even today, I sometimes spend a couple of years working on the animation stuff I'm working on with no updates to the audience that you're hoping to market your film to when your content comes out it gets lost in the shuffle if it doesn't get lost in the shuffle your audience have maybe zoned out of what you're working on because they've not heard from you for some time such a long time i would tell myself don't take for granted the eyes that you currently have on your work just now i know you want to go and make bigger and better things but do not ever take for granted the fact that people are paying attention to the thing that you're already doing because i think that's happened to me i stagnated too much or spent so much time working on the next thing without providing updates without providing engagement with the audience that when i took too long to release something else the audience had already moved on and i I would suggest people to remain in touch remain engaged continue putting up updates and behind the scenes stuff so that they can see what it is you're working on instead of banking on the next thing 
grabbing their attention just because it's the bigger thing. It doesn't work. You need to keep having a presence out there. And for years, I neglected that, and I'm feeling the result of it. I'm finally crawling out at the other end, thanks to us making more consistent stuff. But that could have been pretty bad if we hadn't started doing that. Well, I think that's some pretty good advice, generally, for anyone just now. If you're a content creator of any kind, you know you want to stay consistent, and you want to try and engage with your audience, and you want to keep people who are you know supporting you by watching your content you want to reward them by making sure they've got content to watch because eventually they'll just stop bothering and then you've lost your audience and i think you know that's probably a good good place as any to probably wrap up tonight's show so 